This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. This podcast continues to gain recognition as a great resource for small business owners, uh, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals, from Inc.com to MSNBC's Your Business, uh, Fit Small Business, Proven, and most recently, um, I believe it is um, People First. Uh, it, w we were named one of the best sales podcasts. So, uh, and we're thrilled about all of this and really honored um, because that's why we're here. And it really is largely due to the guests that we uh, get on the podcast, the people who come on, share their expertise, give of their time and their knowledge so that all of you can do better things in your business. Uh, today's no different. My guest today is Scott Hunsaker. Scott, born in St. Louis in 1963, learned early on the value of not only working hard, but working smart. His father was a very successful entrepreneur who worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and Scott worked with him. He then attended Indiana University and credits that experience with teaching him how to manage a process and get to the finish line. After getting his degree in business, he returned to the St. Louis area and worked for Mark Twain Bank for five years. Scott eventually went back to work in one of his dad's businesses and brought much of what he had gleaned in banking to his new role. He bought that business, grew it significantly, and then transferred ownership to his employees. His current venture, Ardent, is built to help other business owners like himself figure out how to do what he did, seamlessly transfer ownership of their companies someday to their employees. Thanks so much for joining me, Scott. Thank you for having me, Diane. I, I am really thrilled. This is a subject I, I think we probably don't talk about enough, though I do think it is quite a challenge, uh, challenging topic for small business owners who think, you know, at some point I'm going to want to leave. I, I would like someone to take this thing over. I would like, you know, my employees who have invested of their time in it. Uh, but a lot of them think they're not ready, they're, they're not, um, maybe they're not qualified, they don't have the knowledge that they need. So let, let's sort of like start at the beginning with what would be your definition of a successful transfer of a business? Well, I'm not sure mine's is the most important because when I talk to CEOs, everybody's definition of success is a little different, but there are kind of four areas that tend to be pretty consistent. 
Usually that first reaction is money. You know, we all perceive ourselves as wanting to make good business decisions and how we typically measure a good business decision is our return on investment money. I get that. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. But then think about the founding owner or you think about somebody that's built this business from the ground up. How important is the legacy? How important are the employees? You know, in my business, some of my employees were my closest friends. I had been to their weddings and been to their kids' baptisms and those types of things. And then lastly, how important are taking care of the customers? Some of my customers were very close to me. I went on vacations with them and those types of things. And so when I talk with CEOs today, I ask them to look back on their career and I ask them, what's going to give you the most pride of what you've accomplished as a leader? Some of the things to help them get to that point is I ask them to think a little bit about a personal mission statement, not just a corporate one, but a personal one. For example, my personal mission statement that I created in the mid 90s was to develop the best possible team, give them the best possible tools and then get the heck out of the way. Now, that's what kind of was important to me, was paying it forward and allowing people to grow to their potential. Now, that impacted the decisions I made in my business life. So, as your listeners are thinking of this, I would encourage them not to just look at their mission statement for their business. And if they execute that flawlessly, will they look back on that and feel a sense of pride and accomplishment in their career? I would also suggest that they look at defining their own personal mission statement and see how that complements and supports the business mission statement and goals and objectives as well. So they meet that definition of success when they're looking back and are proud of what they've done as a leader. That, that's awesome. I really like that. I, I, and I don't think they necessarily think about those kinds of things, um, at least not on that level. Um, so if someone's listening and they're thinking, boy, eight years from now, I want to be out of this business. I want this business to still be viable. I still want it to be running and doing well, but I want to exit. Um, how do they go about like developing that path to make sure that it's a successful transition? You know, I don't believe we can predict the future, and you used the word path. I would suggest we change that to the plural, paths, because I think as leaders, what we need to do is create as many paths as possible to reach that successful definition and outcome that we want, or that liquidity event, or whatever it might be. How many people do you know in 2008 that wanted to sell their company, and they're still there today trying to get it back to where it was back in 2008? And so stuff happens. So kind of my approach is instead of picking a plan, let's create a series of options or under this umbrella, a number of options, which a lot of different things can happen, but will all result in a successful outcome that we'll be proud of and look back on um, with excitement and joy. Okay. So I just want to, I mean, I love that idea because I remember someone once saying to me, you can be committed to the goal, but you have to be flexible with the process. Right. Because, right, because things happen and, and you can't really predict what, what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, so, but I just want to make sure that, that I'm hearing you correctly. Are you saying that we should have a couple of different avenues down which we can go or that we are going? So, so, do you see where I'm coming from? It's like, sure. let me take right. Let me, let me take a different stab at it. Let's look at okay. some statistics right now going on in business. About 20% of business owners say that say it's their intention to sell to a third party and a very large percentage of them are successful in that because typically they're a manufacturing industry or a company and they have a machine making a widget and that machine's going to keep making that widget until either the market changes or breaks and then we have to fix it and we go on. It's fairly easy to come up with a financial model, come up with a multiple and create a financial transaction for a third party to buy the company. But how many of your listeners have a company that their machine walks out the door every day at five o'clock? You know, that's going to be a lot harder to transfer to a third party. So, so how are we gonna be able to do that and, and create that? So 80% of business owners 
say it's their intention to sell to an insider, either a family member or one of their employees. Now, here's the scary part. Only 13% do it. That results wow. 66% of companies closing their doors when the current leadership team leaves. So look, look around. Think about your peers in your industry, your clients, your, your listeners. If two-thirds of your market isn't going to be here when the next leadership team comes on board or this leadership team leaves, what's that doing to our industries? What's that doing to our communities? What's that doing to our model of economics here in the United States? So I think that's a huge issue um, for the business leaders of today. So why is that happening? Is it because they don't know how to do it or they they just think it's going to happen and so they don't put a plan in place you know i i think as we start looking at those two options ceos kind of have it on their to-do list and it's always important but it never gets to the urgent category and we run out of time you know none of us have found the fountain of youth. None of us live forever, and I don't mean to be morbid here, but the reality is we're so busy, you know, the classic line of working in the business instead of on the business. So I I can, if you'd like to go over kind of five steps to be able to do the how, but you know, those steps, you can use a lot of different tools. These have worked exceptionally well for me and the people I work with, but it's more about the learning process. So when you asked about options for the future and paths, what I'm suggesting instead of picking, if you want to sell to a third party, you want to sell to an insider, let's focus on transferring the institutional knowledge and the business savvy to our leadership team. So one, our company will have more value to a third party, or two, the leadership team will have the ability to step up and carry on. And you mentioned at the top of our conversation, you know, the goal being leaving in eight years. Well, what if you didn't want to leave? What if you just want to change your role and do different things? Maybe consult, maybe be on the board. Because quite frankly, a lot of the CEOs today, their personality and the DNA of the organization is their personal DNA. And if they can still have that role and still have those industry relationships, that may be more fulfilling than just a clear cut drawn line drawn in the sand and stepping out. And hey, that's fine too, but now you have choices. And so that's what I mean by creating multiple paths. Create a team of people that can make your company trans- successfully transfer to a third party or transfer to themselves and have the resources in place so they feel comfortable pushing all their chips in and betting their personal financial future on what you've created to make it even better. Boy, I love that idea. I just, I love that because it's in the present, it's in the now, and it's, it, it, it's a positive motion for the company regardless of the future, right? So really, it, it, it helps the business regardless of what could happen, might happen, will happen, and then therefore gives the business so many other alternatives or so many alternatives for its future other than having to close down because the one person who knew everything is gone. Yeah. And you know what, when you also asked about the definition of success for CEOs, many of them don't want to hang around for three to five years after they've made that sale uh, to a third party. Cause it's really yeah. hard to be an owner and an entrepreneur. And then all of a sudden yourself reporting to somebody else, that's not sometimes the best way to finish your career. So the more you can make the company less reliant on you, the better off you're going to be in maybe achieving what you want for you and your family. So you can go off and do those trips and those bucket list items. Okay. So I I really do love this idea, though it does beg the question then, how do you teach your leadership team to think like owners? Sure. Absolutely. So let's kind of talk a little bit about um, these steps. And, there, and there's five of them that I'm, that I'm going to share with you. Now, this plan for going forward is, is, again, just that an outline. You know, Eisenhower said it this way. Uh, President Eisenhower said, you know, the plan is worth nothing. The planning is indispensable. So it's the process of planning with your team, empowering them and giving them the tools to be able to go forward, not just the written document to be able to make that happen. Now, let's not minimize this for a a second here. You know, 73% of businesses in the United States do not have a succession plan. Wow. 
yeah, that's that's a pretty big number. And for your listeners, I would submit you do not have a succession plan if, if it's not documented and not communicated. Now that that's kind of the fifth step we'll get into in a minute. But you know, the idea is a lot of times the CEOs, we said, well, if something happened to me, Billy would take over or this or that. But, you know, if Billy hasn't, isn't a part of that, that may or not, may not be reality. And does Billy have the ability to successfully lead the organization? So these five steps that I'm going to be referring to is all a part of transferring the institutional knowledge and business savvy to the next team so you have options for being able to go forward. So that first step. That first step is authentic conversations. You know, as a leader in your organization, there's a lot of things that only you know. And I would suspect that's what allows you to be very, very, very successful at it. And how you got to be successful is because you're very good at doing your job. But creating leaders is being very, very good at teaching others how to do the job and be a leader and allowing them to flourish. So how do we allow them to make knowledgeable decisions? Well, they have to have information. So what are some of the things that will give them the information they need to make knowledgeable decisions? You know, a common business tool is a corporate dashboard. Um, it's right around 58% of the companies that I've worked with. I've worked with about 500 companies or surveyed them. And about 58% of those companies have a corporate dashboard, a way of, of metrics. Now, why is that important? Did you want to say something, Diane? No, no, I'm just, okay. uh, yeah, no, this is great. Love so why, why is a corporate dashboard important? Because, you know, without a corporate dashboard, the only way the team knows how the company is doing is by you as your, your, the leader's body language walking through the front door. When you walk the, through the front door of your business, everybody's looking to see what kind of mood you're in. Are we in trouble? Are we doing really good? Are there about to be layoffs? What's happening? But creating a corporate dashboard to talk about how the business is going and based upon data and fact, it's gonna give a much better perspective, a perspective uh, for the employees. So let's talk about some key aspects of that. You know, so often leaders manage in the present, but our job really as leaders is to manage a phase or two ahead in the business cycle. I think there's very little we can do today to change what's gonna to happen today with regard to our performance. But what we need to do is constantly be preparing the company for where we're gonna be in the business cycle six months now, a year from now, a year and a half from now. I suspect each and every one of the CEO listeners that you have today have a really good gut about what's gonna happen in their company in the coming months. But I don't know how you transfer the gut to your leadership team. You have to give them the information so they have the ability to create their own gut and make knowledgeable decisions about how to go forward. So, right. so when, when we create these, these dashboards, a lot of them typically include revenue, expenses, profit, sales, those types of things. But what I'm going to suggest is how do you create a dashboard that just doesn't look backwards, but looks forward. So it gives your team the ability to predict about what's going to happen three months now, six from months now, a year from now. So those are some of those tools on the dashboard that allows your people to make knowledgeable decisions so they can prepare the company for the future. Hmm. Okay. So, so, okay. So if the things are in the dashboard and then you can show them how they can look at those things to make decisions for the future, then at some point they get to a place where they're doing that then on their own. Right. And it takes about six months for that to start to make sense because a lot of this is a teaching tool. These dashboards, while I found them very helpful as a leader, they were less about me. They were more for others. So we were setting up a decision-making system or an informational system so they can make knowledgeable decisions. Some of the other things that we used for authentic conversations was our employee surveys, customer surveys. Um, just conversations, I would recommend that your team never go or your leaders never go to lunch alone. How are you transferring the art and science of the business? You know, for example, I had a mentor once and he was exceptional because he would sit down with me every two weeks and not, you know, tell me about what I needed to be doing. He was asking me where I saw opportunities for the future. And then he would ask clarifying questions like, okay, what do you need to know to be able to implement that things? What are all the things that we need to consider in going forward? Now, why was that important? Because what he was doing was nurturing and developing the future leadership team of that organization. So the organization had resources and redundancy so I could do better. 
So are you creating, you know, my father, I love my father dearly, but my, I kind of always said my father was a management, my memo guy. He offered a machine gun fire memos coming out to a, of his office. But when the person writing the memo isn't there anymore, does the company have any value or not? You know, what, what I was trying to do is how can I give the information necessary so anybody in our organization had what they needed to make a knowledgeable decision on their behalf? And that also sets you up for growth. And that's a critical component of this whole recipe of success, you might say. Yeah, it sounds like it's teaching them how to think about the business in a different way. Correct. Right. And you're giving them the tools so they can be successful. Yeah. You're not just right. opening your eyes and jumping off a cliff. You're developing this conversation. And so when you said eight years, again, at the top of our conversation today, you know, that's about the, the right amount of time because this stuff just does not happen overnight. You can't do this in the last 60 days of your leadership. This takes years to put together. Like we just mentioned, six months to start to understand how a corporate dashboard starts to work. You know you have them when they ask their first question about well, what's that mean? And then you can share more data and it's all about teaching and mentoring through that process. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm with you so far. You want to hear about the second step? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the second step is engagement. Now, you know, engagement is an overused word in our industry. We hear it all the time and, and I get that, but we still don't have it figured out. And on the, in the world stage, only about 13% of employees say that they're engaged. Gallup just recently came out with a study that said 34% of the employees in the United States say they're engaged. So we don't have this figured out. So engagement. How are you identifying those in your organization that have the will and the ability to lead? With all the assessment tools that we have at our fingertips today to try and make good decisions about hiring, on my best day, I might have been successful about getting the right person in the right seat on the bus 60, 70% of the time, you know, that classic quote from good to great. Yeah. And so with all these tools, and we're only 60 to 70% successful, um, what makes us think that we're going to be perfect at selecting the right leader and for, the, for our organization going forward? So instead of trying to pick the next leader, what if we created that leadership team bench we spoke of a little earlier and created a dynamic or a metric about how we could let the cream rise to the top and let the natural leader self-select themselves for the future of our organization? Oh, so, I love that. How do we do that? Well, the tool I used um, is a tool that I'm sure many of your listeners are using now in their business, um, and that's strategic planning. You know, strategic planning has been around since the 1920s. Harvard first documented it in the early 20s. About 60% of businesses today are doing strategic planning, and typically how it works is you gather all your industry information, your market information, maybe a SWOT analysis, employee survey, customer surveys, dashboards, all that kinds of stuff find the uh, uh, themes of opportunities for improvement, prioritize them, pick them and execute them. I use SMART goals that are specific, measurable, accountable, uh, timely as a way to do that. And so, and I'm not gonna kind of, uh, my purpose isn't to teach strategic planning, but use the strategic planning as a tool to identify those that have the will and ability to lead change. So for example, for each strategic initiative, we would have a, a, a sign, a, an owner for each task with a due date. And we believed that this was going to be a living document and it wasn't just going to collect dust on the shelf. So we were going to hold ourselves accountable. And how we held ourselves accountable is, is that if you didn't meet the expectations of the team, the first time we had, we called it a strike, the, the, cost, you might say, was you had to buy a dozen donuts for the strategic planning team. By the way, I don't think a strategic planning team should be more than 10 people because anything over 10 people becomes public speaking, and that's not what we're really about here. Now, the second time we had a miss, we had to buy lunch for the entire company. Now, at this point, our company was 50 people. We had five offices, so you were shipping pizzas all over the United States. That was not the expensive part. The expensive part was you had to stand up in front of the company and tell them why. 
that you didn't meet the expectations of your peers on the strategic planning team. The third team, you weren't invited back to the, to the strategic planning team. Now, that happened three times in our organization. The first one was kind of our Wikipedia of knowledge. This was the individual that had been there forever. And after about six months, he came to me and he said, Scott, you know, I'm an engineer. Can I just go back to my cubicle and do engineering? Well, sure. But if I hadn't invited him, do you think he would have gotten his nose bent out of shape and become disgruntled? For sure. So the idea there was, is let's create a safe place for people to demonstrate their will and ability to lead and get them where they need to be in the organization. We had two other people that didn't fit. One was somebody that just had trouble executing. Another was what, that person that I'll call the mouth. They're the ones that have an answer for everything, but never do anything. That person ended up leaving in two years, not because we asked them to leave, but because they didn't fit and they kind of loaded themselves off the island. So in my case of our leadership team bench, we had a couple surprises. One is that our receptionist continued to demonstrate her ability to lead. And over her 10-year career, she went from being a receptionist to owning a percentage of the company. And instead of trying to pick, you know, you kind of let the cream rise to the top. The other example was um, we had uh, two leaders in our organization. One had their MBA and one didn't. And the individual with the MBA, you thought on paper was going to be the heir apparent to the presidency of the company, but that's not what happened. Because the other individual consistently demonstrated his will and ability to lead through leading change through strategic planning. So when it came time for the next leader, everybody just kind of naturally gravitated towards him. And the other people that didn't become leaders didn't get mad and leave, which sometimes happens in a company. They all kind of looked around, yeah, that makes sense. This person earned it and has become kind of the natural leader of the organization. So my question to your listeners is, is how are you identifying those in your organization that have the will and ability to lead, and how are you measuring that? You know, this is, I just so love this whole concept because it's so empowering and so respectful of everybody in the organization. You know, it's saying there's a place, if you want there to be one, there's a place for you. Let's figure out what it is. And giving them the opportunity to rise to the level of leading the organization or contribute where they are or maybe someplace else, or maybe they just aren't a fit at all and they need to leave, but they know that they get it. It's just not the environment they want to be in, but it's a plus for everybody. Right. Right. Wow. I agree with you. Wow. I really like that a lot. Wow. Okay. Hang on for one second. I got to take a sponsor break and then I want to hear about um, the next. You're on. Uh, Number three. Okay. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. If you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are... 80-20 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall, and The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. Both of those gentlemen have been guests on this podcast. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Explore the books that are of interest to you and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're talking with Scott Hunsaker about how to successfully transfer a business to the employees or really to a third party, but we're really, I think, focusing on employees. So what is the third um, stage? So the third is institutional knowledge. Where do you think we keep most of our business information? In the owner's head. There you go. Where's the worst place to store business information? (laughs) In the owner's head. Yep. You know, General McChrystal said, knowledge is not power. Sharing knowledge is power. My Ah. father My father said something, and maybe some of your listeners have caught themselves saying it is, he said, don't write anything down. Somebody might take it. (laughs) And if all that information is in our heads, is that going to be valuable to a third party? 
is that going to give confidence to our leaders to be able to step forward, push all their chips in on our company because they know they have what it takes to be able to continue the success and build on your success of the organization? I would maybe suggest not. So how are we going to get all that information out of our heads into the organization? Well, there's a couple ways. One is kind of creating that master toolbox. You know, back when I first took over the company, I would suggest that we didn't have one company, we had three companies. Do each of us have kids? Do our kids yeah. have a parent to go to to get the answer that they want? Do you think our customers know which person to go to in our organizations to get the answer that they want? So instead of having three companies or three voices, we created this master toolbox. So we kind of had our brand. Now we would allow anybody in the organization to bring forward their ideas of best practices and about how we should do things. And so we collectively put together kind of what I'll call our master toolbox for how we made our deliverables, how we made decisions, pricing decisions, and all those types of things. And we documented that process to be able to kind of put that together. That gave everybody access to that information so they could make knowledgeable decisions about how to go forward. Let me pose a different question to maybe some of your listeners. If you're a founding owner, do you think you have unique information that would be helpful to the next leadership team? How are you giving that to their leadership team? I suspect it's probably a lot of it in their heads. Yeah. My dad actually created something for me called Joe's book, and he wrote down everything that kept him awake at night. I found that as a great way. I think being an entrepreneur comes with insomnia. That's just part of the package. And, <laughs> you know, and trans, transferring some of those lessons to the next leadership team is huge. So they don't have to learn it on their own nickel, you might say. Right. And, and then maybe a third idea about capturing that institutional knowledge. Are you familiar with the term lunch and learns? Oh, sure. Sure. So you have a uh, supplier come in and present information and those types of things. I figured every one of those lunch and learns cost the company three or $4,000 because we're taking people out of production and, and the supplier may be buying lunch, maybe not, it doesn't matter, but it's the time. So we, we used a process of qualifying those lunch and learns. First of all, they had to submit a speaking request. So it identified what their learning outcomes were going to be, why they were going to be qualified to speak on it. Because I didn't want the new national sales manager of XYZ company taking an hour of my people's time just to do a meet and greet. I wanted it to be education-based. Then they had to agree to be recorded. They had to agree to leave their PowerPoint or whatever deliverable behind, and they had to agree to leave handouts. So when they left, we opened up a share on the network, dropped all this information in. So now it's a year from now. You have a new employee coming to you wanting to learn about XYZ, and you said, well, I can take an hour of my time and transfer that information through the old tribal knowledge of sitting around the campfire communicating it verbally. Or I can direct them to our knowledge base where all this lunch and learn information is to get that. And if they have any questions, come back. Over the 12 years we developed this, we had over 5,000 inputs into our um, knowledge base system. Now, do you think that that would be more valuable to a third party if they were looking at your organization? Do you think they'd be will, more willing to let you go after six months instead of five years if they had all that institutional knowledge documented inside of the organization? Absolutely. Do you think your management team would be a lot more comfortable betting and buying your company and investing in your company if they had all that information at their fingertips instead of trying to suck it all out of your head in the last 60 days before you left? Definitely. Yeah. So those are some ways of transferring that institutional knowledge out of our heads into our organizations. Nice. Nice. I often say to people, because I, I advise really small businesses and people will say, I just don't have time to document all of that. And I say, well, then you know what? Start a, a tape recorder. Yep. You've got a recorder on your phone. Start it when you're getting ready to do that thing and just talk out loud, just say what you're doing yep. as you're doing it and why you're making those decisions. And then someone can transcribe that. That's the easy part, but yeah, getting it out of your head somewhere, you got to do it. Yeah. I might steal that one from you. Some of the other tricks of the trade we've used is 
Can you imagine being an intern out of college and sitting with the CEO for a summer and getting to interview them and document all those types of things? That's a great, what a gift to the intern, but also that's one way to institutionalize some of that corporate knowledge of the organization as well. Taping is good. And now with technology can do all this automatic transcription type of stuff. So right. becoming easier and easier every day. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and I always say, I, I don't talk to, these folks really about succession, but I'll say to them, if God forbid you got hit by a bus and you weren't dead, but you were in the hospital, what would happen? Yep. People need a place to go to get the information so that things can keep going. It's just, it's just logical, I guess, right? You have to take the sort of the emotion out of it and the, wow, this is impossible for me to do. It's not impossible anymore. It's right. actually pretty yeah. easy. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Terrific. Okay. What's number four? Step four is um, innovation, not custody. In other words, all that information that we just documented comes with a born on date. So how are we going to teach our leadership team to keep sharpening the saw and keep it current? Let's think of it this way. Can you imagine a CEO coming to you and kind of holding this company out in front of them and he going, here it is. It's perfect. I spent my entire life creating this company. Now, here it is. Don't change a thing and don't screw it up. Now, you know, I, I've been around CEOs like that. And what's the likelihood of success with that? Or the other kind of approach is here it is. This is the best that I could make it. And I trust you to take what I've done and make it even better. So not only do we have to give the information through authentic conversations, identifying who is the will and ability to lead and transferring the institutional knowledge. We have to teach them how to manage change and keep it current and adaptive to our changing world and economies and markets that we're in or else we're not gonna be successful. Because quite wow. frankly, if we, don't, if we don't manage change, I suspect, I submit that we don't even need managers because that's what we do. And so how are we teaching that and empowering our people to be able to go forward? You know, Edward Demings, um, the father of total quality management, observed that 94% of all the problems in the workplace aren't problems with the workers and aren't problems with performance, but with systems. So how can we teach our people how to keep improving these systems? If you're a manufacturer, there's some tools out there. There's Lean and Six Sigma and those types of things. But in our business, we weren't a manufacturer. We were selling gray matter. We were an engineering firm. So every one of our projects was different and those types of things. And we identified that the number one person that was able to help manage change in our organization was our project managers, those out in the field. Now, if one of your people came to you with a great idea, and, and you said, you know, that's the best idea I've ever heard of in my life. We need to do something about that. And 90 days later, nothing's happened. And they bring you another great idea. And you go, that's a fantastic idea. We need to do something about that. And 90 days later, nothing's happened. What's the likelihood of them bringing you a third great idea? Yeah, it's not. You know, this is where I... This is where I've, you, I've heard stories about people literally switching their brains off when they come into work because they're not being paid to think. They're there to do merely what they're being told. So we created the situation report process where anybody in the organization could identify an opportunity for improvement. And we'd sit down once a month and we'd say, okay, do we have enough information to make a knowledgeable decision about this? And at the bottom of that situation report, we had all the tools that, uh, could, that needed to be changed to be able to make that a reality. And very rarely did we have the information that first month to make a good decision. So we would get a lunch and learn in, we'd go do more research or those types of things. And the second time around, we'd ask the same question again. We would say, okay, do we have enough information to make an knowledge decision? The answer is yes. We'd implement the changes, update the master toolbox, but we also recorded all those conversations. That situation report now became a history of how we've created that standard for the organization and all the things we considered when making that knowledgeable decision. So now it's two years from now. Someone wants to know why we do something a certain way. I direct them towards that situation report it's for a new employee. Maybe that's a great way of learning. And I said, hey, if you have more and better information, bring it back and we'll update it again. And we would record on all that kinds of stuff. So over the history of my tenure there, we did about 3,000 situation reports. Well, the first couple of years that we were doing them, 
I would say I was doing 75, 80% of the situation reports. Who owned the institutional knowledge of that organization at that point in time? Yeah. And I would say the last two or three years I was there, I might've done one or two. Now who owned the institutional knowledge of the organization? The people doing the reports, the, the other leaders. Right, right. Wow. So yeah. The question to your team is, what decision or what issue would you not let go more than 90 days inside of your organization? And what process or tools do you have in place to be able to implement it and guarantee that that will be considered so it just doesn't sit and go away? Yeah. Wow. It's great. Okay. And now what's number five? So number five is trusting with confidence. Now this is the piece of Ooh. what I real ownership. So the first four steps, if you're a nonprofit, if you just want, um, you know, instead of real ownership, you just want functional ownership. These are great tools. Trusting with confidence comes back to that statement where I was talking about the CEO. Here it is. It's the best I can make it. And I trust you to make it even better. So let's talk a little bit about common ways about ownership uh, goes on. So if I give you ownership, Diane, what's it worth? What's it worth? If I give you some stock, what's it worth? Well, it's worth whatever the return on the, what, whatever the growth on the stock is. All right. So now it's two years from now. And now I want you to buy more stock. Is that going to create a little bit of a disconnect for you? Yeah. So to me, giving stock away does not create a liquidity event or a successful transfer. Also, if I give you the stock, are you really beholden to what's going on inside the company? You know, if things start getting tough, it's like, well, I sure hope Unsaker figures this out because, you know, it's his company. Now let me right. ask you a second question. If I lend you money to buy stock inside of this company, what's that do to our relationship? Well, it turns it into, I mean, I, it, that feels really uncomfortable to me. Right, right. Can I ask you for a personal financial statement? Uh, you can ask. <laughs> it's about the, that's, the, that's the response I get a lot. Can I ask your spouse to guarantee the loan? Yeah, no. <laughs> is, is the pucker factor going up in the room? So let me, you know, to your listeners, how many of you personally guarantee your corporate debt? I would submit a pretty large percentage of those. Yeah, companies. for sure where the owner's all in. How are we gonna create that dialogue with the future owners about what it means to be a small business owner? My wife is an only child, and her father um, graduated from college and went straight into Shell Oil Company, and he retired from Shell Oil Company, and about five years into our marriage, uh, they were over at our house getting ready for dinner like all families do, and we were talking about what we did that day and those kinds of things. And uh, Sue said that uh, she had gone to the bank because she had to sign a lot of papers. And he goes, oh, are you buying a new house? Nope. Are you buying a new car? Nope. Well, what were you doing? Well, Scott renegotiated his line of credit, and I had to personally guarantee it. He was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. I never had to guarantee Shell Oil Company's debt. What are you doing guaranteeing your husband's debt? So this is what we did. You know, I had two of my key people that uh, were, were in the organization, and I went and introduced them to my banker. And I said, here are these two gentlemen. They can finish my sentences. They, I, they got my back. They're in the trenches with me. They're the future of this organization. Now, they're house rich, cash poor. They don't have the ability to buy into this company, but it's critically important to me that they, they are the future of this organization and we kind of bring them on. So I'm going to do something and I'm only going to do it once. I'm going to personally guarantee their loan so they can buy into this company. Now, does that put me in any more risk if I gave them the stock? No. Does it put me in more risk if I lent them the money? No. But here's what it did. Do you think the banker's going to ask them for a personal financial statement? Sure. Do you think he's going to ask them for a spousal guarantee? Yeah, he is. Do you think now that they're going to have a family conversation about do we want to be leaders in a small business or would we be more comfortable working for a shell oil company where, you know, we don't have those types of obligations? 
You know, right. being a business owner is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a tremendous responsibility because there's a big difference between signing the front of the check and signing the back of the check. We get paid last sometimes. So now when the company's having trouble, they're not just looking at me, whether I lent them the money or gave them the stock saying, boy, I hope they figure this out. They're losing sleep too. And that's where I want them to be. I want them to be on the same side of the table as I am. So instead of standing in front of them, uh, when we're having trouble going, where's my money for the loan I lent you? Now I'm sitting next to them with the banker saying, hey, we need to renegotiate this loan because the market's changed this and that. And that happened to us. We did have to renegotiate those loans. So where do you want to be and what kind of dialogue do you want in setting up your ownership? Now, there's another big piece of ownership, too. A lot of times, and, and it's January, uh, it's January 12th today. And so a lot of times, this is the time of year where the CEOs come back from uh, the holidays and they think about all the things they need to do the next year. And so they're talking about ownership. So I might come back and sit down with you, Diana. I said, Diane, you're great. You're knocking the doors down. You're doing exceptional work. And I'd like to invite you to become an owner. And you go, well, Scott, I'm really flattered and I appreciate that. And that's awful nice. But you know, I'm the same age as you. And I've been planning on retiring here in a year or two. Oops. Remember that conversation at the top of the program here when we talked about if you haven't communicated it and you haven't documented it, you might not have it? Yeah. You know, that's part of it. Because if you haven't told your succession play team that they're the team, oops. Another thing that sometimes happens is that they go and talk to the legal counsel. And legal counsel is super, super, super important in this. And they'll talk to their legal counsel and say, you know, Diane's doing a great job. She's knocking the doors down. I'd like to talk to her about becoming an owner. Can you help me with that? Let's say Tom's the lawyer. Sure, we do that. Let me pull some thoughts together and I'll get back to you in a couple of days. A couple of days goes by. I go in and see Tom and he hands me three inches of paper. And I come back and I sit down with you, Diane. I said, Diane, you're my person. You've, you've got my back. You're the future of this organization. I went and talked to Tom to talk about how we can bring you in as an owner. And I drop this three inches of paper on the table in front of you and you start looking through it and you start seeing preemptive rights. You see a go along, come along, you see a spousal waiver and you go, you mean I got to talk to my spouse? And then you see estimated taxes and all this type of stuff. And then you see the value and you go, you know, not only are you not feeling the love, you think I'm really trying to take advantage of you. How many of your listeners have seen somebody in a company where they started talking to them about ownership and they ended up leaving the company because they just, not only did they not feel comfortable being an owner, they no longer felt comfortable working there. Yeah. So this is how we handled it. We sat down with a list of questions, starting to identify what was important to be an owner. For example, if I'm a 10% owner and you're a 90% owner, can I prevent you from bringing in an owner, a new owner into the organization? Uh, no. Okay. So what you're saying is, is he who has the gold makes the rules. Got it. Makes sense to me. I'm a baby boomer. I understand that completely. But in today's millennial world, it's very common when I'm doing these interviews for a millennial to say, well, if I'm an owner, I should be able to pick who my other owners are. Yeah. You know? If, I think they're right, too, by the way. Yeah. Well, there's nothing. It's not important or the right one. Let me give you another example. If I die, can my wife come to a board meeting? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, <laughs> depends on what's in the owner's agreement. And that's the purpose of this conversation, because the purpose of this conversation is defining what's going to go under the ownership agreement. So if you said yeah. yes, what I'm hearing you say is that we view the company as a cash flow stream to support the family way of uh, lifestyle. If you said no, we're putting the company first. So the ownership is all about supporting the goals and objectives of the organization. So what there's about 50 questions I start with that ends with 200 because we go down a lot, of, a lot of our rabbit holes. But as you talk to the candidates and the current ownership, typically I find that about 70% of people are in alignment on these issues. The last 20% you get there. For example, the family piece. Okay, I don't want to be in business with, with your spouse. Okay, you can right. get Maybe the last 10% you don't get there. And that's the take it or leave it for the current ownership. I'm only willing to sell ownership 
if it under these uh, scenarios. So it took us about a year to go through that. And then we created this white paper. We took that to the legal counsel. Now our counsel could develop a company specific solution for us that reflected our values and expectations. So now when I sit down with new owners, I said, this is who we are. Here's our white paper. This is our, our manifesto. I ended up with 17 partners at one time. And then I gave them the three inches of paper that documented our uh, how we were going to treat each other. But then I gave him a thousand dollar check. And I said, I want you to go hire a legal counsel so you can make a knowledgeable decision about what you're signing. But here are the five things they're going to like and the two things they aren't going to like. And here's why. So 60 days later, they come back and I said, yep, that your counsel said the same thing. He said what you said. Now, do you think that that builds trust and confidence in the future of the organization? Absolutely. Right. So over my tenure, um, I had done 17 stock transactions with my leadership team and we were blowing and going and doing really, really well. And it was, uh, it was in, we were getting ready to do our strategic planning team. I was sitting down with my two direct reports kind of going over it and they were each at about 15% ownership and they always wanted to be 20% owners. Well, at this point I was a 57% owner and I said, you know what, I'm willing to go to 51% and that'll get you to 18% and won't get you to 20. Um, are you okay with that? And they said, sure, I'm fine with and I said, okay, so that, we, that was the deal and we went on. And then the room got quiet. And I said, okay, what do you guys know I don't know? And they said, Scott, it's not the two of us. It's the other 10 shareholders have come to us. Now, this was the leadership team behind my two guys. These were the people in their 30s that owned one or 2% of the company that were the up and comers. And they'd come to these two gentlemen and said, Scott, we want to become major shareholders. Now a major shareholder by our definition that you own 10% or more of the stock. It didn't get you a club, club membership or a company car. It required you to personally guarantee the corporate debt to your percentage of ownership. So that was a pretty big hickey. Now, do you believe that team would have pushed all their chips in if they didn't feel they had the institutional knowledge and business savvy to successfully lead the organization going forward? No. Right. So then I said, do you have financing? And they said, yes. Ooh. Remember when I introduced you to Tom 12 years ago? See, Tom had seen you buy stock over and over all these years and pay it back and grow and lead the organization. So I said, I went and had breakfast with Tom the next morning. I said, Tom, if I'm a 20% owner, you get my leadership and my personal guarantee, but not my cash flow, my compensation, right? If I'm a 0% owner, you get my compensation, but not my leadership or my guarantee. Which one do you want? And Tom said, we will do either. So not only did the employees recognize we had transferred that institutional knowledge and business savvy, the bank recognized it as well. And that's wow. how we funded the, the transaction through uh, the organization. Wow. That, uh, that is, is, oh, sorry, but it is such a great example of building the trust and, right. and having the trust and confidence. Yeah. And you can't build that kind of trust. It, when I talk with people, um, I talk something about our comfort zone and our sheer terror zone. And if you try and do all of this in the last year of your tenure as a leader, as a leader you're going to take your team right into the sheer terror zone. Because every time we successfully overcome one of these obstacles through authentic conversations, through identifying those that have the will and ability to lead, through creating our master toolbox, our knowledge base, and teaching people how to manage change, we're building trust and capacity. And so now when we start handling some of these tough issues, we have the ability to handle them honorably and with integrity and knowledgeably uh, and have the capacity to be able to make good decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And so then um, you're having, you're still having authentic conversations. They're just not uncomfortable conversations. Well, you know, there's always those uh, uh, rolled up your sleeves meetings, but yes, we, we have the ability to have those tough, tougher conversations. Right. Kind of get through it. Absolutely. Yep. You know, going yep. back to the path analogy that we started this conversation with, there's a scene yeah. in Alice in Wonderland where Alice asks the Cheshire cat what path she should take. And the cat goes, well, where do you want to go? And Alice says, it really doesn't matter. And then the Cheshire cat says, well, then it really doesn't matter what path you take, right? Right, right. So, so 
as your listeners are kind of, we're starting to wind down here, you know, what paths are you creating for the future? We can't predict um, where this is going to go and what challenges we're going to face. But what we can do is create the capacity internally, whether to build our organization so it has value to a third party or build our organization so our leadership team feels capable of stepping up and carrying on your legacy, taking care of the employees and the customers. And by, by fact of the matter, too, is there'll be a liquidity event that will hopefully meet your goals for money as well. Right. And, it, and this is a really important time because as business leaders, we all have choices that we're making now. We can either invest in the future or, or robbing from it. So every day you're busy whacking the mole in the business, I might suggest you're robbing from the future. You can take the chips off the table every day and put them in the top desk drawer, but there won't be anything at the end of the, at the end left over. Right. And going back to the privilege it is to be an owner, think about the number of lives that each one of us are responsible for in touch with this decision. It's not just you and your family, but it's your employees and their family, the customers and their family. Um, and it impacts all of our lives. So this is a huge privilege and responsibility as your role as CEO of your organization. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. This, this is so awesome. I just, I love the information. I love that the, um, using what you did and, and the, results that you had as the examples because it just shows the reality of it you know it shows how doable it is and it's it feels to me like it 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 really just starts with the mindset you just have to say if what i want is for the people who work here to contribute to their maximum level whatever that is then here's what i need to do you know, the, the owner starts the whole ball rolling. The owner has to take these steps and, and have these conversations. And I think this is great. Yeah. Now, me, go ahead. Sure. I was going to say, you know, turning your employees and owners is something that we can't do. CEOs can't turn their employees into owners. They have to turn themselves into owners. But it's yeah. our job to give them the path, the coaching, the mentoring, to be able to turn themselves into owners through those five steps, authentic conversations, engagement, institutional knowledge and innovation, and the trusting with confidence piece. But it's to be open to it and to encourage that dialogue. And it's a journey. It's a journey of trust, of developing deeper relationships. And the outcomes are something for me, I was exceptionally proud of. I look back yeah. with a great deal of pride of what we've been done. And because it met my personal definition a mission statement of success. Absolutely. Yeah, boy. I mean, this is just awesome. Thank you so much for sharing it. Now, will you share some about your book um, and where people can get it and how they can get in touch with you? Sure. The name of the book is Heroic Ownership. Um, its tagline is build your team, plan your exit, create your legacy. It is on Amazon. Um, and it just became published in January of 2018. Uh, the author's name is me, D. Scott Hunsaker. And it, um, it's kind of a, a, a deep dive into to how I accomplished this. The first half of the book is focusing on the why to try and move that 66% number so we, we get around to doing it and don't wait too long. And the second half of the book is talking about the how, talking about uh, the five steps that we briefly went over today. That's so great. Thank you. I highly recommend that people get the book it, because this subject is so very important. And I think for, you know, I, I think there's potentially people listening who are thinking, I, I wouldn't have known where to start, who now are thinking, okay, I get it. There is a place I can start. There are things I can do that will really help me build um, a better organization and that the, the future will take care of itself if the folks who I've got working here are empowered and have the information that, you know, if everything isn't just living in my head. So for you folks who are business owners, get that stuff out of your head. It's not a very good place for it to be. <laughs> it's a very scary place for it to be. 
So, well, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate this. I thought this was just phenomenal information. I took a whole bunch of notes, which is always a good thing, uh, which means my listeners probably are too. I also want to thank the listeners and our sponsor. I get a free trial and a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.